everyone, and welcome back to Let's Talk About the Facts, your favorite podcast to listen to me, your host, Elizabeth Fury, fumble over her words and tell you stories about unsolved crimes, murders, ghost stories, haunted places, and on the occasion, aliens. And today, I have brought you one of the favorites as requested by my guest of last week, Rachel Hip Flores, a ghost ship. Now, of course, there are many theories that revolve around this ship, but I will be bringing you not only some of the more popular ones, but the ones that popped into my very imaginative head. I will also say, guess what? It is you and me together. We will be flying solo, but duo, but solo. I also wanted to mention that if you enjoyed the mini teeny micro episode that Rachel and I did. There will be episodes like that and more that will be coming on our Patreon like paid um, premium was it premium feed? That's it. That's the word. Um, uh, to give you a sneak peek, we are doing a requested episode that I've been meaning to do but I've not quite found like the information to do a full episode it's been really difficult but it's one that I've been really excited and it's about bones being found so hop over to patreon um it'll be available to all tiers for a limited time and then we'll see how that goes so and also thank you to everyone who has signed up for patreon we're very thankful that you're here thank you for helping us keep the lights on and everything nice up and running we very much appreciate that you're here so everybody who is a fact fiend or a factoid or a fact friend if you're not quite a fiend um welcome if you've just joined uh I see that everyone's been very much interested in our Cecil Hotel episode. I have messaged a good friend of the show, Nate Ruger, and told him that it has exploded. And I hope you guys like what we're doing and stick around. And we'll are happy to do more episodes like that. It was quite fun to do that one back in August. And then everyone see that uh, special and the Night Stalker special and then pop on over to get even more info or some more like surrounding information that is out. So thank you so much for listening in and hearing what we had to say. Today, I bring you the unsolved disappearance of the Mary Celeste crew or, as I titled it in the episode, The Vanished Crew of the Mary Celeste. So we're really just going to jump in for it. And this takes place in the 1870s. All of us probably went to high school. And if you didn't, the 1870s are boring. Like, I don't want to go all the way back there. So we're not going to even give you context. We're just going to say, and this is the royal we, by the way, Pirates of the Caribbean. Just get in there. Think of it. It's going to be fantastic. So I picked this story because Rachel got me on ghost ships and I blame her for it 100%. So I did a lot of research on this one because I knew it vaguely. I didn't know a lot of the facts. And that's what we talk about here. Dun, dun, dun. And the Mary Celeste actually had another name and has this like whole changing of hands. It's wild. And how the actual situation came about is compelling. 
As Daniel Craig's character, Benoit Blanc, said, it compels me, though. So, the the Mary Celeste was an American merchant brigantine, and it was discovered adrift and deserted in the Atlantic Ocean off the Azores Islands on December 4th, 1872. What a day. Some say December 5th, but, you know, there's like a thing between sea time and land time, and I don't get it. I wasn't there, so we're going to go with December 4th. Um, And some people are like, what's a brigantine? Why are you bringing naval terms into this? You might ask that, and a brigantine is... By all technical terms, a two-masted sailing vessel with a fully square-rigged foremast and at least two sails on the mainmast, and a square top sail and a gaff sail mainsail behind the mast. The mainmast and the second and taller of the two masts... I forgot to put the... The mainmast is the second and taller. My bad. There was a verb I wrote down. Didn't see it. So if that made any sense to you, congratulations. But everyone else who isn't a sailor didn't make sense to me either, which is kind of tragic. I am the daughter of like a naval veteran and I know nothing about boats. Like if we were on a boat, there is nothing I could help you with. Um, I could hold a rope. I could be heroic in like a sea function where they're like, hold on to this unless we all die. But if I knew why I was holding on to something, no technical terms are coming to mind. Nope. Got nothing. So if that didn't make sense to you, I want you to picture it's the same kind of boat that you see in Pocahontas Disney movie. That's about as historically accurate as that film gets. So like toss the rest of it. But if that helps you what like picture the kind of boat we're talking about, it's a big ass boat. Lover, Mary Celeste. She was, an, like, how they describe how she was built, they said the keel of the future Mary Celeste was laid in 1860 at the shipyard of Joshua Dewis in the village of Spencer's Island off the shores of the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. Like, I don't think anyone would describe my birth like that, and I'm a person. Damn. But anyway... So she got started in 1860. She did not last long. Just going to throw that down. Um, I feel like Supernatural lasted longer than she did. The TV show, not the concept. The concept, of course, but the TV show. Anyway, anybody wanted to hear more ship specifics? I didn't want to, so I'm skipping it. So this badass boat would set sail on her maiden voyage on May 18th. 1861 they built boats pretty quickly for what i imagined how hard building a boat would be back in the day without technology but then i realized they probably were really good at it at that point who knows um so she was christened the amazon for that maiden voyage that is a wild name to me for this boat but that's her first name plot twist right just roll with it So she was registered at nearby Parisboro. Maybe it's Parisboro, but it's B-O-R-O. Who knows? People from there can uh, come yell at me at Twitter. It's totally fine. On June 10th in 1861, she was also registered at Nordstrom Rack and Ships R.S. 
Her registration documents described her, get this, at 99.3 feet in length. That's a lot. And then like a whole bunch of other things, but she was 198.42 gross tonnage. They called her beautiful and thick. She was owned by a group of nine investors headed by Dewis, of course, the guy who like, you know, had her built, owned the shipyard. And among of those among those investors, there was a guy named Robert McClellan, and he was the ship's first cat captain. So for her maiden voyage in June of 1861, the Amazon sailed to five islands to take on a co- cargo of timber, and it was for a passage to the Atlantic from like across the Atlantic to London. So after supervising the ship's looting, Captain McClellan actually fell ill and his condition worsened. And the Amazon returned to Spencer's Island, where McClellan would die on June 19th from pneumonia. That's not a good start to your life as a boat. But it would get better because a guy named John Nutting Parker, John Nutting Parker, would take over as captain and he resumed that voyage to London. So, of course, the Amazon had to encounter many misadventures she collided with fishing equipment um in the narrows off of eastport maine and after arriving in london they dropped everything off and then when they were leaving uh the amazon would run into and sink a brig in the english channel and i'm like was john nutting parker constantly drunk or like potentially nuts Cheap, cheap joke there. Please don't laugh. Um, but Parker still remained in command for two years. I wonder if his insurance covered the brig that he sank, but I want to know how he sank it. Did he just like run it over? That would be so great. Like, I really wish I understood more nautical history of the 1800s or late 1800s. Like, what kind of damage would happen to the hull of the boat if you just ran over another boat, especially if it was made of wood? So interesting. Um, But if you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, they're pretty durable. But at the same time, they're wood, you know? Okay, so in 1863, Parker hits the road and on came Captain William Thompson. And he was there for about four years. They were called the Quiet Years. I can't imagine one boat with some significance having the Quiet Years, but okay. Uh... October 1867 comes, and at Cape Brenton Island, the Amazon was driven ashore in a storm and so badly damaged that her owners abandoned her as a wreck. So she's been around for six years, and she got effed up that fast. Wow. So on October 15th, she was acquired as a derelict, or derelict, as modeled by Derek Zoolander, by a man named Alexander McBean. That is a solid last name, and no joke, kind of jealous of it. I do have my silly, excellent last name, but McBean, could you imagine? That's like a clothing line. Alexander McBean and his new turtlenecks. So, within a month, McBean sold the wreck to a local businessman kept his turtleneck business of course 
who in November of 1868 would sell it to Richard W. Haynes, not of the underwear company. And he was an American mariner, which made me think of Waterworld, of course, from New York. So Haynes paid, Haynes paid uh, $1,750 for it. And, you know, I think about that. Um, that's a lot of money in what was it, 1870s? I can't calculate the inflation that fast, like, that far back. But, like, let's say if it was, I don't know, the farthest back I know how to calculate is uh, 1913. So I put it into my generator. And so it comes out that the same item would have cost $46,239. So I think... Roughly, that would have been about $60,000. Like, that's a pretty heavy investment. Um, you don't find a dollar on the bus, right? And you end, he ends up, so $1,750 for the wreck, and he spent $8,000 and 825 sorry, $88.25, can't read, uh, restoring it. And then he makes himself her captain. Of course, he didn't learn. But in December of 1868, he registered her in New York, and he christens her the Mary Celeste, which made her an official American vessel. Uh, before then, I think she was technically Canadian, but you know, hey, the Canadians weren't treating her right. She got haunted pretty early on, so maybe this American thing's going to work out for her. So October 1869, um, obviously, he put... Almost $10,000 and over $10,000 into this ship. The ship was seen by his creditors and it was sold to a group of investors headed up by James H. Winchester. And for the next three years, um, like the composition of the investors would change several times, though Winchester always had at least half of the shares. So... Um, in 1872, the ship underwent a major refit. It cost another $10,000, but she got thicker. Let me tell you, they enlarged her considerably. They added a second deck. They also, if you look in the inspector's report, which I'm not sure if you can find. I just found a report of the report of the report. But they said that they extended the poop deck, which honestly... Who doesn't need that? And then some other things. But more importantly, the extension to the poop deck made me laugh too hard. Um, on October 29th of 1872, so we are in 1872 now, the group of investors hire a new captain. His name is Benjamin Spooner Briggs. And he actually held a third of the investment in the ship. So essentially he hired himself, right? Like a third of himself. And I'm kind of living for these triple names. And I really, I'm going to have to refer to him as Briggs because he was Captain Briggs. And, but Spooner's just like right there, you know, Benjamin Spooner Briggs. And of course, you're wondering why I'm giving you a list of these old white guys, right? That are all dead, we hope. Who owned parts of a ship in 1870s that now finally became our Mary Celeste, who is... The main character here of our story, 
And was it a vehicle just to say their names in these crazy fashions? Or was it to show how many times she changed hands and how she became who she is? And how much timber and money was put into the shipwreck of the Amazon? And what really did trigger this fateful voyage we are literally about to discuss? So many things can be true at the same time. So Briggs would arrive at Pier 50 on the East River in New York City. Don't know where that is. I'm a West Coaster. Best Coaster. To supervise the loading of the ship's cargo. And it is 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol. That's the fuel type of alcohol, not the drink type, okay? The cargo was kept in a mix of red and white oak barrels, right? Um, also, Briggs had his wife and their, like, baby daughter, I think she was either one or two, join them on this voyage. So Briggs and his wife and his child join them on this voyage. And if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, and it's also a well-known superstition for pirates that women are bad luck on a uh, pirate ship. And I think it's just because they brought along the common sense that was... You know, women are like, maybe you shouldn't do that. And they're like, throw her overboard. She's got premonitions. She's evil. She's a witch. Um, and then she'd be right, you know. That's them coming back to haunt them. So on Sunday, November 3rd, Briggs wrote to his mother, because that's what you do when you are Benjamin Spooner Briggs. And... He said that he intended to leave on Tuesday and added that his vessel was in beautiful trim and I hope we shall have a fine passage. They're not. They're not going to have a fine passage. Like, I'm, I don't know how to tell you. It's not a spoiler alert. You heard the top of the story. So anyway, the Mary Celeste um, with Briggs, his wife and daughter, and then seven crewmen. They went to the New York Harbor, and then, you know, the weather was pretty yucky at the beginning, so Briggs decided to wait for better conditions. I kind of see that as an omen, but, you know, at the same time, he did wait for better conditions. So he just anchored off on Staten Island, was like, you know, we're going to wait off. And Sarah used a moment to write a letter to her mother-in-law, the same, the same woman, um... As Briggs' mother, same person. And she says, tell Arthur. They have the same accent. I make a great dependence on the letters I shall get from him and will try to remember anything that happens on the voyage, which he will be pleased to hear. So the the weather eased up like what, two days later and the Mary Celeste left the harbor and entered the Atlantic on November 7th. So I know what you're thinking. You're like, Okay, this is, this seems totally normal up until now. Where's the murder? Where's the intrigue? Besides, like, you know, taking your woman and, like, baby child on a sea journey to, I believe they're dropping this off in Italy. Um, what's going on? Well, actually, this story would have been forgotten if uh, Arthur Conan Doyle had not used it for one of his short stories. If you don't know who Arthur Conan Doyle is, watch Wishbone. 
Like, you know, you could Google, you could read a book, but at the same time, you could watch an adorable dog tell you the story probably better than he did himself. There's plenty of Sherlock TV shows, but there's only one wishbone. So now that I've already pitched that for you, that's where, like, the popularity of this story came from was because yes the initial incident happened and then there was like news and then it fell away and then sir arthur conan doyle brought it back and now it's been a mystery forever so some other background information you need to know as we jump into this information is that while briggs was preparing for his voyage voyage to italy with his denatured alcohol um there was a Canadian brigantine called the De Gratia that was near Hoboken, New Jersey. And it was waiting for a cargo of petroleum. It was on its way to Genoa going through Gibraltar. So its captain's name was David Morehouse. And they were very ex- experienced and respected seamen. Yes, I'm going to let that sit there. And Captain Briggs and Morehouse had a lot of common interests Some people think they actually knew each other, possibly casually, and some say that they actually were close friends because Captain Briggs actually had an 18-year history of uh, sailing. He he was no novice to the trade. Um, Perhaps that's why he felt comfortable taking his wife and daughter to Italy. Who knows how long they planned to stay there. But uh, at the same time, it's a move. But also, some people have said that they dined together on the evening before the Mary Celeste parted. And that was, uh, the evidence for this is kind of limited um, due to a recollection by Morehouse's widow 50 years after the event. But the De Gratia departed for Gibraltar on November 15th and it was kind of going the same route eight days after the Mary Celeste. So now that you got all that backstory, let's get into this mystery and we're going to start with the De Gratia. So they reached the midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal, somewhere between the 4th and 5th of December. I explained that there's a difference between land and sea time, but we're sticking with the 4th, the 4th of December. And it's kind of not that important. So whatever. Captain Morehouse now comes to grace the deck of his ship. And what you would not believe is that there is a vessel about six miles away heading unsteadily towards the De Gratia. And I need to know what an unsteady ship looks like, looks like because part of me wants to know. Is it drunk sailing, like an enormous cruise liner? I mean, you can't take a sharp left in one of those, you know? But records say that the ship's erratic movements and an, quote, odd set of her sails led him to suspect that something had gone awry on the Mary Celeste. So he took out his captain's spyglass, I assume, and he starts looking around, and he's like... Well, this has got to be awful. You know, things were all hunky-dory and there's a boat that left eight days before and uh, nobody's on the deck and nobody's replied to my signals, which I can only assume 
are intricate flag dances at this point? Like, what other signals are there besides, like, shooting stuff up in the air? And I can only imagine that Morehouse's response is just, well, shit. So he sends two men aboard to investigate. I don't know how they got to that ship, but I like to think that they got into a dinghy and rode over, or the ship of the De Gratia expertly navigated over, threw a plank on, and tightroped, walked over, but on a plank. But I'm kind of hoping for option C, a cannonball move. Like, who survives those? But did he have circus performers on board? Who's to say it would be the fastest way to get there? So, those men confirm that it's the Mary Celeste. Her name is on the sternum, and they go on a fishing expedition with no warrant at all. And they climb aboard, and they find that the ship is deserted. The sails were partly set and in poor condition. Some were missing altogether. Much of the rigging was damaged, with ropes hanging loosely over the sides. I mean, aren't we all these days? I mean, it's 2021. We barely made it. But we're all still sailing here, you know, hey? So the main hatch was secure, but the fore and lazarette hatches were open, their covers beside them on the deck. I don't know what that's are, what those are. There's a plural for that. And uh, obviously none of that's important, but just know that some hatches were open. And the ship's single lifeboat, which was small but could accommodate everyone on it, had apparently, it was stowed like across the main hatch, but it was apparently missing. The binacle, which is like, you know, if you've seen Titanic, it's that big, tall, standy thing that has, um, standy thing, it's like waist high and it's a case and it has like the compass and stuff, like navigational equipment. Uh, it basically protects the de- delicate equipment. You know, hey, some equipment's delicate. Um, It had been shifted and the glass cover was broken. And I believe the compass was removed. There's about three and a half feet of water in the hold. It's a significant amount, but not like alarming for the ship of its size. I mean, you know, rain happens. And how do you get it out besides like, I can't imagine like an elaborate siphoning situation here. So I assume that they take care of it when they dock. But um, there was a makeshift sounding rod, which is a device that's used to measure the amount of water in the hold. And it was found abandoned on the deck. So these two men find the ship's daily log in the mate's cabin. You know, first mate. We've all seen Hook, right? There's a lot of naval movies I can reference. I didn't realize I'd seen so many. And the final entry was dated 8 a.m., on November 25th, that's nine days earlier, it recorded that the Mary Celeste's position then as somewhere off of Santa Maria Island in the Azores. Sorry, Azores. As <laughs> try to phonetically do that one. Whoops, Azores Islands, and that was nearly 400 nautical miles, which is 740 kilometers for anyone who's not American trying to parse this all out. From the point where the De Gratia um, encountered her. So the cabin interiors were wet and untidy from water. And 
it looked like the water had come in through doorways and like skylights, but otherwise they were kind of in order. There were some personal items scattered about Briggs's cabin, including an unsheathed or a sheathed, sorry, a sheathed sword under the bed. But most of the ship's papers were missing, along with the captain's navigational instruments. Um, the galley was the galley equipment, you know, place where you eat and stuff, was neatly stowed away. There was no food prepared or under preparation, and there was ample amount of provisions in the stores. There were no obvious signs of fire or violence, considering what they were carrying being flammable liquid. And the evidence indicated an orderly departure, like single file line. I've seen elementary kids do this worse. And, you know, I was an elementary kid that did this worse. And they had basically must have gotten on the lifeboat and left. Middle of the ocean. Um, so when the men reported these findings to Morehouse, they decided to bring the the ship into Gibraltar, which was about 600 nautical miles away. Under maritime law, which you should 100% understand and know, because if you ever go on a cruise or you're on a boat, you should understand how maritime law works. It's totally crazy. It's not been updated for a very long time because we don't really, like, recreational travel by boat like we used to, I should say. Like most people fly. And it's bananas like how jurisdiction works um so basically under maritime law any salver anybody who's like a somebody who does salvaging that's what a salver is but i also read it as saver the first time so like you savor a dish basically could expect a substantial share of the combined value of rescued vessel and cargo right so there's an exact award depending on the degree of danger inherent in the salvage. Uh, so Morehouse basically divided De Gratia's crew of eight between the two vessels and had his first mate who went by the name of DeVoe. Well, I think that was the last name, but we're going to call him DeVoe. And two of the more experienced seamen to the Mary Celeste while he and the four others remained on the De Gratia. And the weather was relatively calm, basically, all the way to Gibraltar, but each ship was seriously undermanned, and progress was slow. The De Gratia reached Gibraltar on December 12th, and the Mary Celeste had encountered fog and arrived the following morning. So she's immediately impounded. Imagine impounding a boat. Like, you're at a police impound. I just, I love the fact that these verbs mean something totally different to us now. And when I, I think of it in these sentences that I wrote, sort of, also researched, um, you get a totally different picture because all I can think of is like a police lot and then just a big ass ship sitting there. <laughs> Sorry, I made myself laugh. So she's immediately impounded by the vice admiral, like his court, and basically is prepared for salvage hearings. And, um, oh, I lost my place because I laughed. And, do, 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 do. So, yeah, DeVoe 
the one who basically captained the Mary Celeste rescue had written to his wife during that ordeal, like of the impounding and such, uh, bringing the ship in. And he was basically telling her, I can hardly tell what I am made of, but I do not care so long as I got in safe. I shall be well paid for the Mary Celeste. So part of me feels like what the four who were on that ship went through was kind of wild. I don't have anything to prove that. It's just a feeling. So there's these salvage hearings. Basically, I'm telling you this part because it plays into the theories of what happened to the vanished crew. So... The chief justice of Gibraltar had the hearing conducted by this guy. His name is Frederick Soliflood, and he was the attorney general of Gibraltar. He also was um, the advocate general and proctor for the queen in her office of admiralty. But Flood, which I find his name just kind of coincidental and funny, but... He was described by a historian as a man whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ. That is the best burn I have ever heard in history. And I have heard some great ones. Like, I wrote that down and was like, I got to keep this. Um, So basically, oh, sorry, there was a second part. He was... The sort of man, once he had made up his mind about something, he could not be shifted. So, it reminds me of a lot of cop stories and, like, missing persons and framed people. And, yeah, it's like, you know this guy. You want to punch him, but you know him. So, DeVoe and uh, the other... The men who went on the Mary Celeste, once they found it, gave testimony and Flood unalterably said or was convinced that there had been a crime committed. And he believed that um, foul play had happened and that alcohol is at the bottom of it. And so there was an um, examination of Mary Celeste that was brought on. And basically there was the notes of the, the same notes that the men found the cuts on the bow, um, kind of like struck by a sharp instrument, uh, possible traces of blood on the captain's sword. But I'm like, how are you going to find out? It's 1870. And his report emphasized that the ship did not appear to have been struck by heavy weather, weather, sorry, Citing a vial of sewing machine oil found upright in its place. But at the time, like, I mean, they, you know, they kind of, like, you know, sailed it in. And luckily, this guy did acknowledge that they could have picked it up and set it upright since that abandonment. But the court didn't raise the point. So basically, how it all plays out is there was an insurance amount for the Mary Celeste, right? And though the De Gratia was able to bring it in, the judge ruled that they were only to be given one-fifth of the value of the ship and the cargo. 
cargo, which is far lower than the general expend- expectation. Like the there was an authority that thought the award should have been twice or even three times the amount, given the level of hazard in bringing in the the ship, the level of like and hazard as in doing two unmanned ships that were both carrying um, flammable liquid and such like that. So that was basically the um, the argument against it. They were saying these people found the ship, they brought it in. They didn't know where these other people had gone. And since the captain's log, which logs every hour, they didn't know where they had gone. They'd been gone for nine days. That could be anywhere in the ocean. And um, so then bringing it in was a very huge danger to themselves. So giving them $1,700 is ridiculous. But Flood who was even reluctant to release the Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction, um, you know, allowed the original investors to get a hold of the ship and then they were able to basically take over and that was the end of that. But basically, let's get into the theories. And the only reason I brought up of what happened is because the tone of how that went down is what brought the suspicion on Morehouse and his crew. And they are still under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. So the evidence that was brought in Gibraltar that failed to support Flood's theories of murder and conspiracy, but that suspicion was there forever. Um, so some newspapers reported like suspect that they suspected insurance fraud on the part of Winchester on the basis that the Mary Celeste had been heavily overinsured. Winchester was able to refute these allegations. And if you remember who I said he was, Winchester was the main investor in the Mary Celeste and Briggs was um, he had about a third of it. There was no inquiry. Um by the insurance companies that is, like issued the policies. So in the 1931, in 1931, which I believe, what, 60 something, 50 years later, there's an article in the Quarterly Review. I don't know what that is because that could be anything that suggested that Morehouse could have lain in wait for the Mary Celeste, then lured Briggs and his crew aboard the De Gratia and killed them there. But that doesn't make sense because the De Gratia was the slower ship. She left eight days after and there was no way they could have caught the Mary Celeste before she reached Gibraltar. Like Gibraltar. That's not possible. But there was another theory that um, basically said that they were in it together and Briggs and Morehouse had plotted to share the salvage proceedings. So that unsubstantiated friendship between the two captains was basically cited for an implausible explanation. If Morehouse and Briggs had been planning such a scam, they would not have devised such an attention-drawing mystery. And also he asked why Briggs left a son behind Arthur if he intended to disappear permanently. 
Another suggested event was an attack by pirates who were active off the coast of Morocco in 18, in the 1870s. However, there was um, a lot of evidence to disprove this because the ship was not looted. Personal possessions of the captain and crew were kind of, they were left undis- undisturbed and had significant value. Um, there was another historian in 1925 that surmised that Briggs slaughtered all on board, killed himself in a fit of religious mania. And there's no evidence to support that either because there would have been bodies, there would have been blood, and this is 1870, and we don't know how to clean that, like, yet. There's no way to do that. They would have all found that. And the DeGratia would have been 100% blamed for it. So that same historian, his name was John Gilbert Lockhart, in 1925, he later spoke to Briggs' descendants and he apologized and withdrew that theory in a later edition of the book about um, the Mary Celeste. So in regards to the lifeboat, there was another basically... So the lifeboat theory basically says that the ropes that attached it to the ships... um, that would enable the company to return to the boat once danger had passed would have like those ropes were damaged and it could have sailed away empty if the line had parted or with its occupants on board. Now it is illogical that the crew would be in the lifeboat if they thought it was about to explode or sink. However, there were nine of the barrels that had tipped over and leaked out. But this gas or this type of alcohol didn't produce a gas, just a smell. So it doesn't necessarily beg the question of whether or not uh, Briggs would have, you know, thought to, okay, everyone get in the lifeboat. We'll pull back and see what happens. Is this about to blow or not? And it's been proven that Briggs was an experienced captain and whether or not he would have affected uh, a panic abandonment. Like if she was about to blow her timbers, she would have still been a better bet for survival than a tiny dinghy. So if that was what happened, Briggs kind of behaved like a fool. If you didn't make sure that the dinghy was attached to the ship. If that's what happened. Um, Because those nine barrels all overturned are interesting. And why would they have been overturned? And that does make sense for are we leaving the boat for just a little bit and then we can't get back? Um, Perhaps something happened. Like, I don't know let's say like a super annoying um, wave hit and it kind of shook things up and they all righted everything. And then someone went down to check the cargo. They saw nine barrels tipped over and they were like, okay, let's air everything out. We'll be back. And then they drifted off. Like there had to have been something. So that one, though, illogical in my mind seems to be the most likely but some have agreed that there could have been alarming circumstances if not extraordinary that could have 
arisen to cause them all to abandon ship um like something along the lines of a severe water spout strike would explain the amount of water in the ship and the ragged state of her rigging and sails the low barometric pressure generated by the spout would have driven the water up from the bilges up into the pumps, leading the crew to assume that the ship had taken on more water and she was in danger of sinking. Other um, explanations have been the appearance of displaced icebergs, uh, the fear of running around, running aground while um, basically like they hit something along the side of, the island and then a sudden sea quake that has also been reported so hydrographical evidence suggests that an iceberg drifting so far south so far south is improbable and other ships would have seen it such as the Doratia who was there and drifting toward like something like the Dalabarat reef that was off the Santa Maria island where she was close to that's also like if they had scraped it that explains the scrapes that would explain like oh we're taking on water we gotta go but then wouldn't you feel like a, like a jackass if you're sitting in the dinghy or something and you see like a perfectly fine ship just go away um it also could have been the sea quake which is basically it causes enough turbulence on the surface to damage parts of the Mary Celeste cargo and it would have released the noxious fumes. So rising fears of an imminent explosion could have plausibly led Briggs to order the ship's abandonment and place hatches. The displaced hatches suggest an inspection or an attempted airing, like I had said. So um, in 2006, which I think is really interesting, an experiment that was carried out for channel five television by um, Andrea Sella of the University College of London. They did this experiment and the results of which helped revive the explosion theory. Uh, Sella built a model of the hold with paper cartons like representing the barrels and using butane gas. Um, there was... Uh, an explosion that caused considerable blasts and a ball of flame but contrary to expectation no fire damage within the replica held so basically the response was what we created was a pressure wave type of explosion there was a spectacular wave of flame but behind it was a relatively cool air no soot was left behind and there was no burning or scorching I see where they're coming from with that. And I wonder if butane gas is the closest comparison we have to the 1870s type of um, unnatured alcohol. But if that room was filled with gas because of those barrels exploding, that could be exactly why they um, abandoned ship. And if the lead line that they had attached to the dinghy didn't stay attached for whatever reason. So they could go back in case it didn't sink. That would make sense for why they drifted off. So 
those are all of the plausible ones, but and none of them really make sense. They kind of make sense. They always like have a but if, if you catch my drift. But the fun ones that I love are the myths and false histories. Because fact and fiction, both are our speciality. But also, it was just intertwined with this story for decades. And, you know, we know the story of how they, this story kept its strength, right? So the most influential retelling, of course, was... And the January 1884 issue of Cornhill Magazine. Um, it was an early work of Arthur Conan Doyle, and it was a 25-year-old ship's surgeon at the time. The Conan Doyle story was J. Habakkuk Jeffson's statement. It did not adhere to the facts at all. And I'm okay with that story. So he called the ship the Marie Celeste. So instead of Mary, Marie. And the ship's captain was named J.W. Tibbs, and the fatal voyage took place in 1873, and it was from Boston to Lisbon. The vessel carried passengers, among them the titular Jeffson. So, in the story, a fanatic named Septimus Goring, with a hatred of, like, all white people. I think that's how that went down. Um... Basically, murders Tibbs and takes the vessels to the shores of Western Africa. Here for it, by the way. So, the rest of the ship's company is killed, except for Jefferson, who is spared because he possesses a magical charm that is, um, basically, Goring is down for it and his accomplices. So, Conan Doyle had not expected his story to be taken seriously, but... There was um, someone still serving in the U.S. Consul in Gibraltar, and they were so intrigued by the story that they wanted to know if any part was true. That I find to be so interesting because nothing matches. Like, there is no, like, even the ship's name is wrong. That is so interesting to me, but thrilling enough. I love it. Very interesting cool um but my favorite is that the los angeles times newspaper i still read today retold the mary celeste story in june of 1883 with invented detail allow me to quote every sail was set the tiller was lashed fast not a rope out of place the fire was burning in the galley the dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold the logger written upon to the hour of her discovery that would have been horrifying that would be a haunted ship that would be a holy ship moment if i were the two men investigating i'd be like i'm out i don't know how to deal with this it's called a man overboard i'm that man and i'm going overboard um because that would be a haunted ship if uh or they're all underground ready to poach a person because they have cabin fever holy crap so the november 1906 overland monthly and out west magazine 
reported that the Mary Celeste drifted off the Cape Verde Islands some 1,400 nautical miles. That's 2,600 kilometers. South of the actual location. Among many inaccuracies, the the first mate was a man named Briggs. And there were live chickens on board. That's my boat, okay? I'm here for the chickens. Because we all know that wicked chickens make devil decks. So, another awesome, hilarious recount account was from one Abel Fostick. And it was in the 1913 The Strand magazine. He's an alleged survivor. And supposedly, Mary Celeste Stewart. In this version, the crew had gathered on a temporary swimming platform to watch a swimming contest. Hmm. In the ocean? Went so freezing? When the platform suddenly collapsed, all except Fostick were drowned or eaten by sharks. Especially the two-year-old baby. Unlike Conan Doyle's story, the magazine proposed this as a serious solution to the enigma. But it contained many simple mistakes, including Griggs for Briggs, Boyce for Morehouse, and Briggs's daughter as a seven-year-old child rather than a two-year-old, and a crew of 13 and an ignorance of nautical language. Many more people were convinced by a plausible literary hoax of the 1920s. And that would be written by Irish writer Lawrence J. Cading. Again. It's another survivor story of one John Pemberton. This one, complex tale of murder, madness, and collusion with the De Gratia. Big fan. So, it includes basic errors, you know, the Marie Celeste misnaming personnel, the faves. And nevertheless, it was so convincing that the New York Herald Tribune, I don't know that one, but New York Herald Tribune must be a big one back in 1926, Because it thought it was beyond dispute. And it was horrible. It basically said that uh, Morehouse had murdered Briggs in this co-opt plot to get the insurance. And then he murdered his family and everyone was in on it and the bodies were thrown overboard. It was wild. I want to get away with being able to do that one day. No, I don't. I don't want to spread informa- misinformation, but I want to tell like a story that wild one day and be like, oh, no. Or at least the New York Herald Tribune to notice me. Um, there were a couple others. Like there was um, a former bosun who allegedly came <laughs> up and another that would suggest an entire crew of the Mary Celeste was plucked off by a giant octopus or squid. Um, according to the National History Museum, a giant squid can reach 15 meters in length. And it has been known to attack ships. I don't think that came from nowhere. <laughs> but pick off members of a crew without, like, you know messing shit up over there and it not turning into like the ending scene of a Pirates of the Caribbean with Jeffrey Rush yelling I'm a bit busy! I don't think that's plausible. But also there has been 
the mystical experience and potentially aliens. I said I would get to aliens. I've done it. There is a popular theory that everyone on board was abducted by aliens. The fact that that is a popular theory blows my mind. But at the same time, I love it because it kind of goes with the whole Bermuda Triangle type thing. And it's delightful. I like that they're linked with like the Pyramid of Giza and Atlantis and the Bermuda Triangle. But like, you know, the story of the uh, World War II pilot who was flying and just disappeared. This is one of them where the pilot flies and then is never heard from again. This one is there's a ship's entire crew and it vanishes. It's got to be aliens like ancient aliens hosts are thrilled right now. And the fact that that one has more traction than perhaps maybe they tied a lead and it failed and they've just floated off into nothing. Or did anyone check the Azores Islands to see if they were hanging out there? And maybe they'll find their skeletons? I don't know. That seems super likely. Like, if that was the last time they rode down anything, maybe that's where they went when this, like, accident of barrels happened. So, I want to know if anyone else thinks that potentially the ship was haunted by the ghost of owners past. Because if they got scared off the ship, that also is incredibly funny. That's horrible. I know these people are missing, but at this point they would be dead anyway. So like, I feel like cracking jokes is okay. And I mean, it's almost 200 years ago. It's fine. And they, there had to have been something that just like gave them the Patrick drop jaw to where they were like, we got to get off the ship. I don't think that anything else could have happened. Pirates don't make sense. The Degratia doesn't make sense unless they were both in on it and everybody else wanted to disappear because you can't really just hire a crew being like, hey, guys, do you want to disappear without somebody ratting that out? Like, yeah, I was going to take the Mary Celeste job, but they were like, do you want to disappear forever? And I was like, no, I've got plans. And so that's something that I feel is very plausible. And by plausible, I mean ridiculous. But you know how often people got spooked back in the days? What could it have been that spooked them so bad to get off the boat? I do love the theory of the blow up down in the hole. That's a cool one. And I love the idea of them tying a lead and it fucking up. And that goes to the, quote, haunting of the Mary Celeste. But I would love to know what, you know, listeners think. If anyone's got a really cool idea or wants to try to piece something together it's never been solved i don't think it can be solved because there's not a possible way to solve it these people disappeared and they have never been found and there's i doubt any way that we could find it and this ship was decommissioned in i wrote it down and i lost it i think 1884 sorry 1885 i can't read um basically i can't read my own handwriting that's what really goes down um and she would have even more just like misadventures it's delightful to read 
terribly, but like it's like early crimes, current crimes, future crimes. Tell us all about it, Mary. So that's the vanished crew of the Mary Celeste. We never found them. Maybe they did disappear and just wanted to fuck off to Italy. And he was like, I don't like my son Arthur that much. So I guess he's staying behind. Um, But please tell us what you think on Twitter, on Instagram. And we would love to hear from you. Also, don't forget, we do have Patreon. And all of those handles are T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S. That is Talk About Facts. And you can find us there. Please at us for any comments or, you know, whatevs. And excited to share this ghost-ish story with you. Though, I don't know. I can't decide if any of these are more plausible than the others. I mean, giant octopus, why not? But at the same time, like, I can't say definitively if any of these are more logical than the others, because at the end, you could just say cabin fever and slowly threw everyone overboard and there was no way to get back on. You could also say that maybe he, one of them went nuts, strangled everyone, threw them off, or a couple of them went nuts, strangled them, threw everybody off board. And then cut the lifeboat because this was a horror movie. And then they had like a a shootout where they shot each other at the end and they both fell off board. No blood. And so by the time nine days later that the DeGratia shows up, it's confusing. I do feel like the DeGratia is in, like, innocent in this one insofar as not murdering anyone. However, I do think that if they were all in it together to get some dollars... That would be interesting, but it wouldn't make sense to me. I just feel like if the DeGratia was in on it without the others to be there to help sail, like it just so many things don't make sense, but that's okay. This one is one that I'm like, it's unsolved and it's going to stay that way. There's so many mysteries we can't solve. This is one of them. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next week. We'll have another mystery and it's a mystery what that mystery will be. Have a great week and make sure you're staying safe, wear a mask, do all the fun stuff that you know you're supposed to do. And we'll see you next week.